We're in Luke chapter 22 this morning, focusing in on verses 24 through 38. If you haven't been here with us, we are at this point in which Jesus is gathered uh, with the Passover meal, a meal that he has longed for to eat with his disciples. And they've gathered around a table, reclining at the table, and he took a cup and he took bread and he used those to teach them about what he would do in the hours to follow at the cross in which he would atone for the sins of his people. And it seems strange that at this moment of joy and celebration of God's mighty work to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt, that an argument would break out at the table. But there in front of Jesus, the disciples begin to argue with one another, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And you think, this is ridiculous. Why did they even do that? Well, the question is, is the same for us this morning to think about is, um, are we as prideful as the disciples then? And are we um, at the same level in the sense that it would not be above us to break out an argument over who is greater. Jesus' words, though, changes the perspective of the disciples and their view of the kingdom of God. And it is not only for then, but it is also for now that in Jesus' words, he changes our perspective and our understanding of the kingdom of God. The big idea from the text this morning is this. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in being a servant to all. Look with me at chapter 22 beginning in verse 24 through 38. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. For you are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said nothing. He said to them, But now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Again, the blessing that we have to have the word of God printed for our reading to hear from our Lord and Savior Jesus as he speaks to the disciples then he speaks to us now through the Holy Spirit and the word of God if you pay attention to what Jesus is um, 
spending in this moment with the disciples, he changes their perspective of what they believe greatness is. And he uses some specific words. And here we see in verses 24 through 27, after they begin to fight, Jesus uses words that correct and words that encourage. In our study of Luke over the past year or longer than that, we have seen Jesus correct his disciples and sometimes rebuke them with words for their lack of faith. And he continually is correcting them and others who are listening to him as he teaches them about the kingdom of God. But what we see in these first few words is that Jesus not only corrects them, he not only encourages them, but actually what Jesus does is he destroys the disciples' theology. You see, the disciples' theology is man-centered and it's focused on themselves and their view of the kingdom of God. Look at verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who what? What does it say? That's the key word this morning. What is it? I know that you're like way far away from me and those at home, there's like a group of people out there, but I know you guys can be louder than that. Thank you. The word is serves. That's the key this morning. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, great in the kingdom of God, you must be the servant of all. And Jesus is the example for us as the greatest servant of all. What Jesus does, though, if you look at these verses, he corrects and counters what every one of us begins to learn from birth. You need to be great in your lifetime. You need to be ambitious. You need to have great self-esteem. Phrases like that that we grew up with and we learn in school and sports and with family and friends, all they do is fuel self-conceit. They fuel what is what we call pride. And Jesus exposes the pride of the disciples and he exposes the pride of our life when we see him correct them with these words. When you think of pride, you ask the question, well, what is it? Pride, pride can be good, right? And pride can be bad. Well, what's clear from scripture that pride and pridefulness is sin. And pridefulness is thinking higher or greater of yourself more than anyone or anything or even God Almighty. Pride would be for you to have great pleasure over your achievements in life, over the things that you have done, and you take a great pleasure in yourself. Satan, Lucifer, the greatest of the angels created, fell from heaven because of the pride. He was kicked out of heaven by God because in his pride he tried to raise up above God and a third of the angels with him, and God cast him out of heaven. Therefore... It is actually fitting for you and I to have pride and sinfulness because we're born with sin. We're born with a sin nature. We, as the word of God calls us, wicked. And therefore, pride is something that should be a part of our lives in the sense it goes right hand in hand with a sinful person. I actually believe personally that sin is at the root and the foundation, that pride is at the root and foundation of all of our sin. And that pride fuels man-centered theology in that we are greater and we don't need anyone and we don't need God. Atheists are prideful. They don't believe in God. At least they say they don't. They maybe have not read Romans chapter 1. 
which tells us that God reveals himself to all mankind. And it's in the pridefulness of man that we would reject the truth of Jesus Christ, that we would reject that God is the creator of all things. Read Romans chapter 1 this week, if you've not read that. But can Christians be prideful? Yes, that's the right answer. Christians can be prideful because when you become a Christian, the word of God does not say that you just stop sinning. We still battle with sin. We're forgiven of sin. We're set free from slavery to sin, but we continue to struggle with sin. Pride being one of those areas. And even the Christian can wrongly think that they do not need God to achieve certain things for God in life. And therefore we take credit for the work that God does in us. Ways that this comes out in the church and then in the body of Christ. Songs we sing. Songs, what do you mean? To have a pridefulness in the life of the Christian can come out in the songs that we sing. A song that we've sang a few times here is called What a Beautiful Name. For the most part, the song is a great declaration of Jesus Christ and his power and his glory, his might, his grace. But there's a line in there that I asked our worship team to change last time. It's, there's a line there. It's, called, it's a song, What a Beautiful Name. It's by Hillsong United. It says, you, verse 2, You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Let me read that again. You don't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. Do you hear a problem with that statement? So you're like, no, not really. God does not need any of us. Before God said, let there be light, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect unity, they did not need us for anything. God does not need us in heaven with him so that he can be happy and joyful and have fellowship. The Trinity, God Almighty, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect fellowship, no need for man even to be created. And when we view God that way and Word of God teaches us this, then we understand that God even giving us life is grace. That God even letting you breathe at this moment is His mercy upon your life. Turn to Romans chapter 11. You want a passage of scripture that reminds you and I that God does not need us, that he is perfect. There is no reason that he needs us in heaven. Romans 11 verses 33 through 36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Does God need us? No. Yet I believe that many Christians struggle with the fact that we think that God needs us. He doesn't need any one of us. It's only by the grace of God that we are here today and that he gives us life. And then let's think about this the other way. Okay, so we want God in our life. But have you ever only wanted God at certain times? Even as a Christian? I only want God to help me now. We want God in our terms and our time. And so what we have a problem with is we think up what is titled man-centered theology. 
things like this. I just stopped sinning one day and I turned and believed in Jesus. That's a statement that man has come up with. That's not scriptural. Well, what do I mean by that? If you turn to Ephesians chapter 2, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if we believe what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10, we would then understand that salvation is a, is a gift of God. It's his grace. And when we read uh, the rest of scripture in a moment, we'll go to Romans. We'll see that even our turning to Christ in faith is something that God does by the Holy Spirit because a wicked enemy of God does not just stop one day and say, oh, I believe in you, God. It doesn't happen according to scripture. It's all a work of God. And yes, you then say, but pastor, I have my free will. Yes, God has given you that to choose to believe in Jesus. But it only happens because he's opened your eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's called you and moved you and regenerated you so that you would then believe in him. Jesus asks a question about greatness. Look at verse 27. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. Do you know that this is not the only time the disciples have argued over greatness? If you read in the gospel accounts, we've already seen this in Luke. Also, if you go to Mark chapter 9, there's a reference where they begin to argue. Who is going to be the greatest out of the gang? And it's, it's one of those things, I wonder what it was like. Peter saying, hey, I walked on water. Like, yeah, but Peter, you sink. Well, I was the one who found the kid with the five loaves and two bread. Yeah, but you're the one who left it on land and you thought that God was teaching you about something. You totally messed it up. Guys, I'm the one that Jesus loves. I'm sitting closest to him at the table. I don't know what, the, what they argued, but it was just ridiculous types of arguments. When you think of they have the king of kings and the Lord of lords in front of them, and they're arguing over who's going to be in what position. Mark chapter 9, verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the 12, and he said to them, if any would be first, he must be last. And what's the key word again today? Serve, servant of all. And so Jesus flips upside down the world's view of greatness and says, if you want to be great, you need to love and serve others. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 summarizes what Jesus did in his life, death, resurrection. And it says for us here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, the example of how you and I should pursue greatness, how to follow the example of Christ and be a servant. It says in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And some of you are saying, amen, that's good. But yet, isn't that a challenge for every one of us to consider someone else more significant than any of us? Verse four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
Have this in mi this mind among yourself, which is, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is what? Lord, to the glory of God, the Father. You want to follow the example of the greatest servant? You follow Jesus Christ. You strive to live as he lived life here and understand you can't do it on your own. So therefore, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to empower you to walk in holiness, to walk with the Lord as you read his word and apply it in your life. So ask yourself this today. How am I striving today to be a servant like Jesus Christ? Am I willing to serve other people without ever being acknowledged or seen by anyone in this world? Because some of them are like, I can serve those people, but that person I can't serve, Pastor. You don't know what they've done in their life. You don't know what they've done to me. Christ calls us to serve and follow his example. Proverbs 16 is a warning for you and I. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Here's the warning if there's any pride in us. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. If there is prideful in, pridefulness in your life, it leads to destruction. And therefore take warning and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the pride that you may have in your life. If you look back in our text in verse 28, Jesus encourages them for their faithfulness. First he corrects them for their pridefulness, now he encourages them for their faithfulness. Verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in trials. He encourages them because he is the one who has no place to lay his head. They traveled miles and miles on foot. He was constantly being attacked and rebuked by the religious leaders. He was accepted by many and rejected by many. And the disciples were with him through any, all of it, through every bit of it. And he encourages them for being faithful to following him. And what he says in verse 29 and 30 is of great importance to them and to us. He says, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom. Do you know what the word assigned there means? To make a covenant. And so he says, as my father has covenanted with me to give me a kingdom and a people, I covenant with you, verse 30, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We've spent the last month and a half when Jesus has pointed these things out and promising to them that they would be at this banqueting table in his kingdom, fellowship with God Almighty. And here he says, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And just as sure as that promise is for the disciples, do you know, church, do you know that God has made a promise to his people? That he's made a covenant with you, as we saw last week, a new covenant. That if you do have faith in Jesus Christ, you've been forgiven, you've been set free from slavery to sin. He's given you new life, life eternal, and he's given you an inheritance to be with him around his banqueting table for all eternity. That's a promise. Read Ephesians chapter 1. The spiritual blessings that God has granted us now are also for all of eternity. 
And therefore what he has promised, he always fulfills, as we'll see at the end of the text here today. And at the same time, to keep our pride in check, know that we don't deserve any of it. God is holy. He is perfect. He is without sin. He is righteous. And we are sinners and we do not deserve any of his grace or any of his mercy. And therefore we should praise God this morning that he has loved us first and that he's given his life for us, that through faith in him to be saved, that he has for us an inheritance waiting for us now. Some of the spiritual blessings now in fullness in the future. With that in mind, look at verses 31 through 34. We know that in the word of God, there are times that we read it and it hurts or it wounds us. And here we see Jesus's words to, this, to Peter and the disciples, and they are words that wound. Have you ever been disqualified from a sporting event before? Maybe as a swimmer, you didn't uh, do the right turn, touch the wall right. Maybe in a track meet, you faulted too many times. Maybe you're getting ready for a game, coach comes up to you and says, hey, you can't play. You say, why? Well, you didn't make grades. And sometimes there's this wounding of our pride that happens. And so in the midst of this argument, for pride in this prideful argument of who is going to be the greatest there before the king of kings there at this table in Passover time Jesus speaks words that wound specifically Peter's pride and also I would say the pride of all of them and we know that Jesus because he is God he was also added to himself humanity and so Jesus is fully God and he is fully human and he has known no sin that he ever committed but he knows full well, as Hebrews tells us, that he knows the weakness of man and he knows the temptations that all of us face. He knows that in a few hours, all of his disciples, when the soldiers come to arrest him, they will flee and they will run. And the gospel accounts, not just Peter, but all the disciples say, no, Jesus, we'll, we'll stand with you. We'll die with you. We'll go to prison with you. And he's like, no, you all turn away. In verse 31, it says this. Simon, Simon, this great expression of his love for Simon, says, Behold, Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Circle and, uh, and highlight and underline that first you. Satan has demanded to have you. Now the rest of the yous that follow will be singular, speaking of Peter, but here it's plural. Jesus is saying to all of his disciples, Satan has demanded to have all of you. Yet how many times do we think of just Peter? night Jesus a few hours later all these disciples run for fear and yet Jesus says Satan has demanded you disciples just like Satan demanded Job in chapters 1 and chapter 2 and what God, what Satan uh, was allowed to do Satan asked for Peter James John Philip Nathaniel all of the disciples that he might sift you like wheat. The word sift there, you may think, is uh, you've studied before, again, the sifting of, of wheat and the chaff. It literally means this in the Greek. By inward agitation to try one's faith to the verge of overthrow. Satan wants you, if you're a follower of Christ, to test your faith. Do you know that? The enemy wants to test your faith, that you would fall away in some way or try to turn away from the Lord. But look at verse 32. 
what comforting words. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. To Peter, he says, I've prayed for you, Peter, that you would not fail. And when you turn, because Jesus knows all things, I know that, G that Peter would turn. And in a couple weeks, we'll see when Peter, re he says, hey, I don't know Jesus three times. And Jesus finally sees him on the third one there. And they look face to face and he goes and weeps. But there is this point in which he says, when you have turned. And I was thinking, oh, Jesus, why didn't you just spare Peter of these things? Why don't you protect Peter from being tempted by Satan? And then I came across James chapter 1. It says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If you're a follower of Christ, have you ever been tested in your faith before? Have you ever gone through a trial before? Everyone just stares at me blankly. I would say that most of you probably have, even if you haven't realized it. And yet James says, you should have joy when you meet the trials in your life. Joy? I don't want that. In the, these things here, joy over that? Loss here? Sickness here? Trouble here? Temptation here? Joy? Yes, because... The testing of your faith produces steadfastness in the Lord. And steadfastness, when it has its full effect, brings you to the point of being complete and lacking nothing. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. If we look at what Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I've prayed for you. That should just be something that rings in your mind and your heart every day for the rest of your life if you're a follower of Christ. He said, Peter, I have prayed for you. Do you know, church, that Jesus Christ prays for you? Again, the, the stairs are just... Yes, Jesus Christ prays for his people. He intercedes for his people at the right hand of the Father. And you know how we know this? The Word of God tells us. Turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25 through 27. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Did you see back there in verse 25? He always lives to make intercession for them. He is constantly praying on behalf of his people. You see, Jesus Christ is the great high priest through his mercy that he has atoned for the sins of his people. He has shed his blood for his people to forgive them and to set them free from slavery to sin. 
Jesus Christ is our high priest now who intercedes for us now just as the nation of Israel would go to the, the temple and they would bring the sacrifice and once a year the high priest of Israel would come out and take the blood of the sacrifice and go back into the Holy of Holies and he would pour out the blood in the mercy seat so that God would pass over the sins. Jesus Christ is not only the greatest prophet. Jesus Christ is not only the greatest king, but Jesus Christ is the greatest high priest who intercedes for you. He prays for you. That you would stand in your faith. And therefore, Satan, the enemy, wants to test you. Trials are allowed to test your faith. And we must seek the Lord to stand in it. I want to remind you of John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, he's not only our high priest, but Jesus is the good shepherd. Read John chapter 10 this week about the good shepherd who is his shepherd over your life. Because what Jesus does when he prays that we would walk through the trials and we would stand and be faithful as he encouraged the disciples that day, that evening, Jesus Christ preserves his people. He will not lose one of you. If you are saved in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you will not be lost. You cannot stray far enough from the Lord. He will bring you back. There is nothing that Satan can do to take you away from God. He will bring you back. Because John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Do you trust in God? Do you trust in his sovereignty? Do you actually believe that he's in control of all things? So do you believe John chapter 10? He is the good shepherd, yes? And if he says that none, can, none of his sheep can be lost out of his hand or the father's hand, do you actually believe that? Or do you say, well, but wait, you don't know about that person I know. They made a profession of faith. They're no longer walking with the Lord. Well, scripture is clear that God will not lose his people. He will bring them to the inheritance that he has given them. So therefore, the person is strained and God will bring them back or they are not saved. Some of us don't like that. But that's what clear scripture has for us. Turn to Romans chapter 8. As you turn to Romans chapter 8, I'll read to you back at verse 32 in Luke where we're at. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Are you encouraged from verse 32? Are, do you, are, church, are you joyful that, God, that Jesus prays for you? I'm like, I know it's sunny out here. I know we're working on our tan. I got to see everyone like this. Yes, bring some canopies or, or umbrellas or whatever. You prepare for the sun or whatever. But do you have joy in your heart knowing that Jesus Christ prays for you? Romans chapter 8, when you understand God's love for you as one of his people, when you understand that he prays for you and that his prayers are answered, when you read Romans chapter 8 verses 20 
8, you understand it more clearly. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if you continue reading... The love of God is so great that Jesus Christ is interceding for us and that he will see us through. But don't forget the cross because that work was done first and his work to save us from sins was finished at the cross. And his resurrection from death to life gives everyone who have faith in Christ eternal life and the great inheritance of Jesus Christ forever. With that in mind, I wonder if Peter, Jesus' words just flew over his mind because in verse 33, even after hearing Jesus say, but Peter, I'm praying for you. Peter says, Lord, I'm ready. I'm going to go to prison with you. I'm going to go to death. I'm ready. In Mark chapter 14, it says he just kept insisting. Jesus, you know, there's nothing. I'm going to be with you. And yet, uh, Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, three times you will deny me. Words of Jesus, scripture, words that wound, wounded Peter, words that wound us. And I was reminded of Proverbs 27, verse 6, that says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Jesus Christ is our Lord, He is our Savior, He is our brother, and He is also our friend. As Jesus Christ called His disciples His friends, He calls His people His friends today. Therefore, when you read the Word of God, accept His words, even when they wound you and they break down your pride. Know that it is for your perseverance in the faith and being strengthened to walk in holiness. Let's look at the last few verses. We bring this to a close in verses 35 through 38. Jesus says that there are words that must be fulfilled. He speaks some things that must be fulfilled. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. He said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. You see, when we read in Luke, when Jesus sent them out before, he had set all things sovereignly in place and that all of their needs were taken care of. They didn't take money. They didn't take a sword. They didn't take an extra cloak. They didn't take these things. And God did a work through them and he provided abundantly for them. And he says, now there's a time that's changing Again, I'm going to the cross. Now is the time for you to prepare these things. And he says in verse 37, For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. Turn to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53. Jesus Christ says... Verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 53 must be fulfilled. 
verses 10 of Isaiah 53 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Look at verse 12. This is what Jesus says must be fulfilled. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jesus quotes Isaiah 53, 12 and tells the disciples, those words must be fulfilled. And he was numbered with the transgressors. The Messiah will be crucified like a criminal among other criminals. Jesus says this must be fulfilled. As we read in John chapter 10, if you read that this week, he says the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He gives up his life for the sheep. No one made Jesus go to the cross. Jesus obeyed the Father. We'll see this when, they go, when we look at the Garden of Gethsemane. And the agony that Jesus was in, knowing that he would become sin so that we could be made righteous. And not only be made sin, but receive the wrath of God, the full wrath of God, the Father, upon him. And Jesus Christ obeyed the Father to die on the cross as a criminal for criminals. And therefore, we must ask the question, what is a criminal? What is a criminal? A criminal is a law breaker, a person who breaks the law. If you speed and go two miles over the speed limit, you're like, oh, come on, pastor. You're a lawbreaker, right? If you lie to your parents, children, you are a lawbreaker. If you cheat on a test at school, you are a lawbreaker. If you murder someone or have hatred in your heart, you are a lawbreaker. And the list goes on and on and on. And therefore, you are a criminal. Pastor, you're being too harsh. No, a lawbreaker is a criminal. And it's every single one of us because 1 John 3 verse 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You see, every one of us, every single person born into this world is a criminal. And Jesus died a criminal's death meant for every single criminal born into this world. Turn to Romans chapter 5, the last passage we look at this morning. Romans chapter 5. I pray that you're reading the Word of God every day. Read Romans chapter 5. Read the book of Romans. Ask God to speak to you as you read during the week. Verses 6 through 11. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We're fine with the ungodly part, right? Yeah, we're ungodly before God saves us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
We're okay there, ungodly and sinner. Look, read on. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, and that's the part we don't like. We don't want to admit that we were ever born into this world as an enemy of God with wicked hearts, people that do not seek God. We don't want to ever admit that because that is the pridefulness that's rooted in the foundation of all mankind and the sin of our hearts. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his what? His life. Amen. These things should stir your heart with great joy and affection for the Lord and what he's done for you. The cross should mean so much that he gave his life. He shed his blood so, and he took the wrath of God the Father becoming sin so that you could be made righteous through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And therefore, Jesus, by his death on a cross, actually he made a way for everyone to be saved but his blood was shed only for his people who are saved. What do we mean? If Jesus Christ's blood that was atoned for, which we focused last week on the blood, the cup that, was, that he brought before them. If his blood atoned for everyone, for all people ever, then we are all universalists because everyone and all has been saved. But we know from Scripture, especially our study of Luke, that there are people who die rejecting Christ, no faith in Him, and they spend eternity in hell, receiving the wrath of God upon them for all eternity, and they are not saved. And therefore, Jesus' blood was not shed to save them in that sense, because if it was, then it should be accomplished and everyone would be saved. Their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, even though the cross is open and able to save all. Only those who faith in Jesus Christ are saved. And Jesus Christ poured out his blood for you. And therefore, I pray that you have great joy, great rejoicing, great thankfulness for his love for you. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, you've heard the gospel preached to you. It's been laid out before you. And I pray the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart, calling you to believe in Jesus Christ, and that you would place your faith in him. That we would join the prophet Jonah, who says salvation belongs to the Lord. As the worship team comes forward, a couple of questions for you to think about. Jesus says, get rid of pride. He's the greatest servant. Follow that example. We see it at the cross where he died for us. And I'd ask you this this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, are you dealing with pride this morning? Are you envious of other people? Does jealousy fuel your day? Do you approach Jesus daily, knowing that you've been forgiven, but confessing your sins to him, rejoicing in that forgiveness, and praying and asking to walk in humility? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would break down the pridefulness of our hearts. Would you put a joyfulness in us, a great joy, knowing that you have given your life for us.
Would you remind us every single day, the rest of the days of our life, that you pray for us as your people? Would you stir our affections for you? Would you give us such a joy and a, a, a spirit to devour your word and to apply it in our life? Father, I pray for any who are far from you, who are here this morning, who are not saved. Maybe people in these buildings around us who are listening right now, that today would be the day of salvation for them, that they would pray and just say, Jesus, save me. And that you would give them faith to believe. Lord, we want to sing and praise you. And so we lift up our eyes, we lift up our heads, and we lift up our voices and praise you, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords.